If I'm not mistaken, this is the only Sunday we hear in the whole three-year cycle of uh, Jonah and the, the book of Jonah. We do hear a little bit more during Lent, the first week of Lent, and especially the first Wednesday of Lent. Uh, but uh, So it gives us an opportunity. And we know that the book of Jonah is so much more than that whole episode with the, the whale. It's, uh, it's a tale that is um, wonderful to read, and so I encourage you to read it. But uh, in order to understand really why the church in her wisdom would give us this uh, as a first reading paired with the call of the fishermen, uh, the connection is much more than the whole uh, fishy story. But Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh. Now, if we don't know uh, geography or, or uh, cultures or anything like that, we might think nothing of it. But Nineveh is in modern-day Iraq. Uh, they w- it would have been Persia at the time, or not, not Persia, um, Babylon at the time, uh, within Babylon. There, there was a natural antagonism against Uh, Israel from Babylon, uh, a hatred, perhaps. A modern-day equivalent would be to ask a Jewish person to go into modern-day Iran, where uh, the Ayatollahs have uh, a death wish against the Jewish people. So Jonah did what was natural, not was supernatural, but what was natural, he went the exact opposite direction. He set sail for Uh, a southern land. And of course, as God would have it, a storm came up. They realized that somebody's hiding from the Lord, and through uh, natural selection, they come to realize it's Jonah. And Jonah is thrown overboard, and the sea stills, and he's swallowed by the fish, of course. And after three days, he's spewed up on on the shore, and God calls him again. That's where today's reading picks up. God calls him and says, you're going to go to Nineveh and you're going to proclaim the message that I shall give you. And Jonah does. He goes through that great city that took three days. Now, a number of years ago, I read, you know, scholars uh, call the whole book of Jonah a a bunch of bunk because it didn't take three days to go through, well, up and down and uh, through every valley and uh, uh, passageway and alley and everything like that. It could have taken three days. Uh, to talk to everyone that he could talk to, but he was given the message by God, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be destroyed. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That was the message. 40 days. And you could, uh, were supposed to set your calendar by that. And if he were a true prophet, in 40 days after his message was proclaimed, Nineveh should have been destroyed. Why, I have a question, was it 40 days from the start of the preaching or 40 days after the preaching, but that's irrelevant. To be a prophet, his message had to have come true. There was no outs for him. And of course, he's more than successful. He goes to that pagan territory, proclaims a message to his natural enemies, proclaims a message that he probably Uh, really kind of enjoyed preaching. Forty days more and this town shall be destroyed. Wonderful, terrific. But the people hear and they repent. The message gets to the king himself and the king issues a decree that they are to fast and put on sackcloth. In fact, the king makes it a decree that applies even to the cattle. Have you ever tried to dress a cow in sackcloth? and force them not to eat or drink? 
That's how sincere, how total their conversion was. And so God relents. And now Jonah is, to use a nice theological word, ticked. He sits on the outskirts of town and he watches and waits and he knows that it's not going to come and he's mad. Mad enough to die, he tells the Lord. The Lord sends a gourd plant that gives him shade. The heat of the Babylonian sun, that shade was good and he enjoyed the shade. But the next day, God sent a little worm that ate the roots of that gourd plant and killed the plant and now Jonah's mad again. And God tells him, see, I created these people. Should I not care for them? You cared for that gourd plant. You you enjoyed its shade. You did nothing to to earn it and did nothing to, to make it happen. I gave it to you. Should I not have compassion on these people that converted? And the message is not just the conversion of the people of Nineveh, but it's Jonah himself. Jonah, who needed that reformation in his own life. He needed to ask the question, am I going to follow the Lord or am I going to just do my own thing? He needed to reform. And he becomes a model to all of us that we too need reformation in our lives. And then we turn to the gospel passage. And we see the Lord beginning his message. This is a time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's an ongoing message. If I'm not mistaken, these are the first words of our Lord in the gospels, in the gospel of, of, of Mark especially. Repent and believe in the gospel. Metanoia is that, that repentance word, and it means a change of mind. But so often with the metanoia or change of mind, we think uh, we have the modern sense of mind, well, I was going to have chicken and decided to have pork. No, that isn't the change of mind that our Lord invites us to, although that may be some of it. But it's a change of a worldview, to change and to put on the mind of Christ, which is seeing the world with his eyes, understanding how he wants us to see the world. That's repentance, to accept the gospel in its fullness. So it's a reforming one's worldview. And of course, our Lord, he comes across the fishermen, Peter and or Simon Peter and Andrew. And they were hard at work trying to make a living. Uh, by the way, we have some hint that they must have been fairly successful because uh, they're working with uh, James and John and, and uh, Zebedee, and they have hired men. They were per- perhaps a consortium of fishermen that. Uh, worked together and provided for each other. So if one had to take the day, the day off, they continued to earn. They were successful. But our Lord calls them to a different thing. Come after me. He seems to be inviting them to conform their lives to his. To learn what it means not just to reform, but to put on that mind of Christ fully, completely and to begin to see on their own even things that weren't necessarily talked about directly by our Lord, but to take on an understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And of course, he gives to Simon and Andrew, I will make you fishers of men. I have to admit, I enjoy reading scholars that, that well, Jesus is the only first one to use this term, and what does he mean by it, and they spill so much ink, and I think it's very straightforward 
To be a fisherman means to catch them where they are and to bring them into the kingdom of God. But unlike a, a fisherman who reaches down into the depths of the waters and pulls out the fish with a net or with, with a hook, it's not to the fish, the, the fish there eventually dies, but to be a fisherman is to bring them into life, an eternal life, to bring them in to see that worldview that the Lord has and wants us to have, to bring them into the process of repentance, to bring them into the process of reforming their lives and conforming their life to Christ. And our Lord invites them to follow, and they do. And he invites James and John to follow, and they do. And they go through this process of reforming their lives, of conforming their life to Christ. And when all is said and done, after the death and resurrection of our Lord, Peter goes to the ends of the earth and proclaims the gospel. Andrew goes to the ends of the earth and proclaims the gospel. James goes to the ends of the earth and proclaims the gospel. John goes to the ends of the earth and proclaims the gospel. And all the saints, all the apostles do. Well, except the one who betrayed our Lord. He didn't conform his life completely to the Lord. He still had his own sins and affections. He loved the money bag and used to steal from it. The authors of the evangelists tell us. Judas, who did not conform his life to Christ. But those who do, who reform their lives and conform to Christ, transform the world. And that's, this is what all the saints have accomplished. They reform their lives, they conform to Christ, and they transform the world. And St. John Paul II, look at that process in his life and what it has done for us, giving us a great wealth of theology, the theology of the body, the gospel of life, that whole language around the gospel of life. Or Blessed Mother Teresa, or Maximilian Colby. They live their lives conformed completely, totally to Christ, and the message that they give, sometimes because they wrote it or spoke it, but certainly by their lives, transforms the world yet. And we need that message and as I contemplate the state of the world this day, and not that the world is always going to hell in a handbasket, but certainly we live in a world that is so antithetical to this Christian worldview that we have. So antithetical, and especially as we prepare to mark tomorrow, the 52nd year of, or 51st year, sorry, of, since Roe versus Wade, thank God it's been struck down. But this whole issue that we have with abortion and completely distorted worldview. We, we hide it in, in things like compassion. Let us be clear that compassion never is based in an untruth. Compassion has to be based in truth. It's not compassionate if we were going into debt as a parish and, and there was, we, we couldn't pay our bills and the lights were going to be about to be shut off and the church was going to be sold and everything like that. It would not be compassion for me to stand up and, and say to you, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. That's a lie. And lies do not ultimately give compassion. Now, there's a better way to couch it Instead of, you know, goodbye everyone, we'll see ya. Nothing we can do about it. But compassion is always based in the truth. As we about, uh, are about to mark Roe versus Wade 
and the overturning of it, we call to mind that we live in a state that our governor and various others have, are seeking a way to enshrine abortion in our state constitution. I find that horrible. And as I've said before, and, and others have said before me, I don't pray just for abortion to be illegal. I pray that it would be unthinkable, completely unthinkable. Because it is in that worldview of Christ that we begin to see that life has meaning from that first moment of conception, that it has value even if we don't understand it, even if we don't see it, even if we hide behind words like product of conception or, or embryo or fetus. I find it interesting. Fetus in Latin just means little one. It doesn't mean this clump of cells of, of meaningless form. It's a little one. It's a child. And ought to be protected. And those who are given to the ravages of abortion need to be given other options. And the church and, and various organizations, pro-life organizations, give those options. And so often we're accused, because again, that, that anti-Christian, anti-Catholic worldview, we're accused every time we talk about abortion, we only care about the baby up to birth, and after that it doesn't matter. No other organization than the Catholic Church has provided better care for mothers who are in difficult pregnancies, providing care not only at birth and through birth, but beyond. And Catholic education, which we'll talk a little bit more about next week, Catholic hospitals and university systems. The church cares for the whole person, but it begins in that worldview of who we are as created in God's image and likeness. That worldview is so important today, and, and it's, it's not just an, uh, because there's a pressing issue or whatever, but it comes to play in the whole worldview of gender ide ideology and sexual preference. That we're, when we bring such things up, we're accused of being bigots or, or homophobes or whatever it is. And no, no, we just have a worldview that is based on the truth of how God created us. We're all broken in some way, shape, or form. When it comes to sexuality, uh, that's where Satan wants us and sticks us the most because it's a way not only to get one person in trouble, but two or more. But we're all broken. We all need that reformation in our lives. We all need repentance in our lives. And the Lord offers us so much of a better way, so much of a better way of coming to understand that we ourselves have been called to reform and conform to Christ. And when we do, when we accept that invitation, we can transform the world. Maybe not at the same level, of course, as St. Peter or St. Andrew or St. James or John or St. John Paul II or Mother Teresa or Maximilian Colby or any of the saints, but in our own way, to transform the world for maybe those closest to us. That we would transform the world by inviting somebody that we know and love to see the world new with the eyes of Christ. To begin to conform their lives to Christ. To invite them, too, to transform the world around them. This world needs our reformation and our conforming to Christ. 
This world needs transformation. The time is coming, as St. Paul says, when it all will fade away. And we will begin to see and understand what this world is all about. All its beauty, all its wonder, all its joys, all of that that points us to Christ, that points us to God, our Heavenly Father, and all the problems, all the things that drag us or want to drag us to the pits of hell itself. By taking on the worldview of Christ, we will transform this world.